Good morning. To put all your fears at, at rest, as Pastor Jonathan said, maybe I'll preach short. No. <laughs> I, I, I think the Lord did one thing in the pandemic. Uh, if folks put themselves at risk to come together to worship, if you put yourself at risk on a slippery date, you deserve a full meal. <laughs> all right. All right. So uh, turn in your Bibles to Acts 16. As you're getting there, I think it's on page 924, maybe 925. Um, uh, today we're talking about uh, the issue or the concept of household, and the Lord has been doing a work in my life over, well, decades really, but with increasing um, tempo, maybe, uh, I, I am confronted with the reality that the church is not an institution, it's not a business, it is a household of faith primarily, and that ethos, that sort of description ought to uh, guide how we work, how we live together, how we worship, how we serve, how we groan in prayer, how we uh, support one another in difficult times. So uh, what I want to talk about today is a household of faith, and not as a definitive explanation of that, uh, but as a, an in entry uh, in our discussion about household. What is a group of Christians called? Uh, can you bring up that slide, Jeff, that has the few different words? Uh, kind of this, the size of the word shows the frequency in the New Testament of what a group of Christians is called. And you can see that household is the main one. In fact, it's so significant, this Greek word oikos, household, house, and those who are connected to it, that I think I counted 27 different other Greek words that use that concept as the root for which the New Testament starts to fill out who we are to be as brothers and sisters of Christ. There are other words, of course, that are used that are also very instructive. Church is one, 114 times that Greek word ekklesia is used. So, but you'll notice it is smaller, actually, than the concept household. Uh, church is, of course, that's what we put on our... our, our uh, uh, names often are in, in the word church. That, so there's something there, a gathering like that. The word body is used 12 times. The body of Christ, the body, uh, the church body is used once or twice in the New Testament. The word temple is also used once in a while, eight times. Temple of God, temple of the Holy Spirit, referring both to you as the individual, but also the collective, the, the group that we are called the church, called the, the household of faith. The word flock is used because, of course, remember that Jesus said, I am the great shepherd. So that analogy fits that we are little sheep and who among us has not enjoyed thinking through Psalm 23 and clinging to the reality that we have a great shepherd. Amen. Yeah, yeah, we do. Assembly is used rather infrequently, only a couple times. But there are also words that are missing that you might expect, especially one that's really quite telling. The word synagogue that is used throughout the New Testament as far as referring to the context in which the church is born and birthed. Never in the New Testament is uh, our God's people, the New Covenant people, called a synagogue. Not once in the entire New Testament. Nor are we called a nonprofit organization, a business, a school, an army, a hospital, a club. A, you know, all these things that we, we kind of import into our way of being going. But household is used throughout. What does that mean? Uh, 
And I want to be patient with you and ask you to be patient with me. We should be patient with each other and go as slow and, and patient with each other. There's a song that irritates me when it comes on uh, the radio, Christ, contemporary Christian radio. It says something like, didn't you say the church was to look like a hospital? And every time I say, no, he didn't say that. <laughs> and most recently, my beloved bride, who is my right hand, she's my side, she's my everything. She said, Josh. Calm down. <laughs> Remember, you didn't used to know that either, that the, church, that the New Testament didn't say that. Oh, yeah, you're right. So since you, you know, be patient with, these, with those who are not as far along and haven't spent as much time in the Word. So that was a word, thank you, honey, of confessing my sin in front of all of you, uh, in sin of impatience. Uh, we must understand what Christ's church is, what it's like, who we are, how we're a part of it, uh, and, and be biblically oriented. Otherwise, we're, we're just adopting or importing or imposing our views uh, maybe some of our experiences of what the church should be. I've had at least three foundational, fundamental uh, shifts in the recent years that has really uh, recalibrated my experience of church and my, my knowledge of it and my uh, role in it as a son in, of, of God, as a parent even in my own household, as a pastor. And they, they are pretty clear. Some of you will will know I'm beating a dead horse, so to speak. Make disciples. That's the first thing. Matthew 28. It couldn't be clearer that we will be evaluated on whether we're a disciple who's making disciples. Matthew 28. Go make disciples. That's the verb. That's foundational. That's fundamental. That's why we have five branches that we're developing. The second is my prayer that Paul uh, or that Paul prayed for us that I thought if, if there's anyone in the New Testament besides Christ that I would would respect and affirm and want to become like it is the follower of Jesus, a guy named Paul who was deep in sin, really missed it big time and he gets an encounter with the risen Christ that totally recalibrates everything about his life. And he's writing to what I think has become my favorite New Testament assembly, local church, the church in Philippi that we've been talking about in Acts 16. He's writing to that church in Philippi, and he says, he actually at the very beginning of that letter, he tells them what he's praying for them. And I thought, whatever Paul prayed for them, that's what I wanted to pray for me. That's what I want to pray for you. What does he pray? Philippians 1, 9 through 11. This is my prayer that your love may abound. More and more in knowledge and depth of insight or discernment. And he goes on talking about the fruit that comes through Christ. It's a beautiful one-sentence prayer. It just, it, it just crystallizes everything. And as a guy who's an engineer type who went through seminary, uh, in my experience of the church too, I had thought or supposed or kind of absorbed by observation of other people and other churches that the main thing that churches should be about was teaching and doctrine and distinctives and, and theological matters and knowledge. And that should be there, but that isn't the main thing. That's not what Paul said. He didn't pray that their knowledge would abound. He prayed that their love would abound in knowledge. And that commitment has, has forced me to become that kind of pastor I, I hope I will be that, that develops a congregation that allows great diversity to some degree in theological convictions that you and I might have, but are learning to love one another as Christ loved the church. Because isn't that what Jesus said? They will know you by your knowledge. Love. love. They will know you. The world will identify your, my people, this is my household, by your love for one another. 
by your love for one another. And this third foundational thing is this ongoing lifetime journey now of understanding whenever the, the scriptures talk about household and, and looking at how God through the apostles and through Christ was establishing a new thing, a, a house uh, of, of a household of faith, a house of faith, that I would learn how to be part of that and how to participate in that, and how to be a steward in his house. Eugene Peterson, in his book, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, uh, with the under underscore title, Discipleship in an Instant Society, writes this about this concept. Living together is one of the great and arduous tasks before Christ's people. Nothing requires more attention and energy. It is easier to do almost anything else it is far easier to deal with people as problems to be solved than to have anything to do with them in community. If a person can be isolated from the family, from their husband or from wife, from parents, from children, from neighbors, then they can be professionally counseled, advised, and, and guided without the complications of all those relationships. And things would then be much simpler. But... If such practices are engaged in systematically, they become an avoidance of community, which is why we're seeing such a, a fracturing of the American society, this atomizing of people as they are disconnected from family and from others who are nearby. But Christians are to be a community of people who are visibly together in worship and who remain in relationship through the week, witnessing and worshiping God. So a church is not a building you enter, it's not a service you attend, it's a people that we are, right? Brothers and sisters in Christ, devoted to Christ primarily, and because we're devoted to Christ, actually, we start to be devoted to one another because if Jesus died for her, he must be really committed and all in for him, for her. And so I should also, in yielding to what he has done and chosen, also support him in his love as his hand or as an eye, or whatever it might be, how you might serve one another. I'm beginning to entertain, I hope that you are with me as well, that perhaps our understanding of household has room to grow, has room to develop and fill out and mature. Could it be that our practice, more to the point, more, you know, moving it from knowledge or information, that our actual practice of being a household could develop? That is my prayer for us this year. Because I, I look at Acts 16 and I see what happens with the Philippian jailer. And I hear when he cries out to the apostles, he says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And their answer is quite remarkable. They say, this is in Acts 16. Uh, well, let me read it. How about that? <laughs> Acts 16. I just really, I could read it. Uh, let's skip down because I was actually, to be completely frank, I blanked on what they said. Uh, <laughs> verse 30, he says, what must I do to be saved? And 31, they say this, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Anybody here wish that the salvation of Jesus Christ would penetrate further in their household? Anybody wish that someone who is far off from Christ or not where they could be or should be would come and know him and, and not be striving so much, trying to wrap themselves together, hold it together, and just, just come as they are and just collapse at the cross, find him re-identify, redefine, forgive, and find regrets evaporate like snow 
in Florida. I think that happens in Florida. I'm not in Florida. I know some snowbirds in Florida. I imagine they're enjoying themselves, maybe watching online today. Acts 16, the word household in English is a word that means a house and its occupants regarded as a unit. A household, a house, its occupants regarded as a unit. That's We're talking about household management. We're talking about budget things later today. Keeping house, you might say, the affairs of the house. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, Paul says to this marvelous disciple, this son in the faith that we'll talk about momentarily, he says this. He's writing to Timothy, his son in the faith, probably from prison. He's, he's talking to him about budgets and chores and stuff like that. He doesn't use those words, but that's what he's referring to. He says, I hope Tim, to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. This is why though church doors are closing, people, you see churches are languishing, you see people distracted, you see our culture abandoning the church, and it seems like numerically, don't believe all that nonsense because the church is the household of the living God. The problem with, with God is you can't kill him. People tried that on the cross, remember? And it, he didn't stay dead. His church will continue to flourish and, and, and develop and, and buttress the truth. Buttress is, is that thing that holds it up. Because when a, in an era when lies are pervasive and you just don't know what to, what to trust... God, by His Spirit, can testify who to trust, what to trust in His household. How should the household of God behave? I want to look at uh, three instances. Actually, their, their household, as you begin to look at the Bible through that lens of household, uh, rather than like an American overly individualized, like me and Jesus, isolated separation of of me and my family, sort of church and state isolation thingy. You, you, if you view it from that and you atomize the scriptures, you think it's just about you and Jesus, where in reality, the Lord Jesus will save you perhaps as a beachhead like Normandy in order to save everyone else or many others connected to you. He, he wants to save your whole house like he does with the, the, the Philippian jailer. He's active to some degree in that manner, and you're participating in that. And, and, and Paul is, is assembling a, an incredible mission team to see the household of faith planted in various communities and starts here in Philippi. I'm not going to read the whole chapter. We've read it a couple times now in this month. But here we're at the end of uh, January, and I want to read three glimpses into what might rock your world and how God views household and what he might do in your life and what he is doing in the church of Jesus Christ. The living God is alive now. Here's what, what happens. I'm going to read Acts 16 in the first five verses, just the first paragraph at first. And, and, and this word household doesn't come up here, but it's all about household dynamics. It's all about who's in the house and how we function and how we do chores together. Listen to this. Acts 16 verse 1. Paul came also to Derby and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer. But his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. 
As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. Uh, Father in heaven, that last little thing, we would, we want to be that. We want to increase in the faith daily to see uh, this strength come from your spirit by your word as we're, we're, we're grounded in Christ and, and, and loving one another more deeply and fully. And we would love to see our numbers increase daily, not because we want more to do, not because we want more to steward and shepherd. I, to be honest with you, I, 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 sh I shrink a little thinking about more, but I, I'll tell you this. We want Jesus Christ to be exalted and we're so sick and tired of other competitors of other so-called agencies and organizations. I will not even dignify them with the term household, but other groups that people can be connected to, but then they eat each other up down the road if they don't agree down the line. Not so here. Oh, Father, be alive in us, we pray. Recalibrate us this year, even this morning, into what you, as our great Father, have designed your house to be what is to be our legacy, our part in it, and may it be absolutely crystal clear by your spirit how we ought to live and move and be. This day and every day, in Christ's name, amen. How should the household of God, the household of faith, behave? He's... This paragraph, initially, you might think this has nothing whatever to do with what I just asked, but actually it has a lot of interesting things to do with these dynamics. Look at Timothy, for instance. Why did Paul take Timothy and circumcise him? Mom and Dad, you can explain later what that word means. <laughs> I won't uh, take that on. Uh, that's your responsibility. Why did Paul take and circumcise Timothy. Now, that's very interesting if you've read the rest of the New Testament more carefully, especially if you've read what Paul said to a church in Galatia. <laughs> that's right. Galatians 5, verse 1. This is what Paul is writing to another context, to, other, to Gentiles who have received Christ. And he basically commands, demands, explicitly says, do not get circumcised, he says. This is what he writes, uh, Galatians 5.1. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify it again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. So why did Paul do that for Timothy? Did he change his mind? What's going on? Is he a hypocrite? Is this inconsistency? Not at all. Here's an observation for you in the household of faith. In the household of faith, the motivations, the reasons for doing a thing are essential. The motivation, the reason for doing something is absolutely essential. In the case of the church in Galatia, the Christians, the Gentiles there, they had someone come in or a few people, they were called, we think, Judaizers, we call them that. These people came in and they were suggesting that, yes, it's great you're baptized. Glad to hear that. Glad you're a new covenant part of Christ. But hey, if you really want the whole deal, you got to also add the old covenant. You also need to be circumcised. You also need to follow all the prescriptions laid out in the old covenant, the old testament, those scriptures. And, and Paul writes to these folks in Galatians 1.6. He says, I'm astonished. 
I'm astonished about you that you're so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ, and now you're turning to a different gospel, he says. He goes on in chapter 2, 15, 16. This is again Galatians. Uh, we ourselves, writes Paul, are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also believe in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So what he's saying is, what gets you in the house and keeps you in the house is not following the house rules, is not obeying, is, is not your effort that gets you in there in the first place or keeps you in there. It is Christ and Christ alone. And that's what we sang throughout the beginning half of our service. Amen? It's all about Jesus. And what Paul is saying, he's, I'm forbidding you Galatian Christians from getting circumcised because of why you want to do so. You want to do it so that you can save yourself to some degree or another. As soon as you do that, Christ is, is nothing. He, you're adding Jesus plus. The gospel plus. The scriptures plus. Don't do that, he says. You must not do that. But the case of Timothy is a different situation. Now, he's a Gentile by his father. It says he, his father was a Greek. But he's also a Jew by his mother. And that makes his case a little bit different. And more to the point, the reason Timothy is getting circumcised is very different than what the Galatian Gentile Christians were seeking. He's not getting circumcised in order to be further justified. Now, I know that, I believe, I can make that a case because of verse 2 where it says this, that he, that is Timothy, was well spoken of by his brothers. In other words, Timothy was well grounded in the faith. He's useful. He's stable. He, he has the potential to be depended upon and competent, competent already at where he's at. He's not an infant in the faith, like Paul says to the Ephesians. He's not an infant who's easily tossed to and fro by every wave of doctrine and carried about. He would see through these Judaizers' lies and how they're adding to Christ and the justification by faith alone through grace alone. He would see through that already, and if he hasn't yet fully articulated that well, Paul will help him out that with that. So Timothy, when he is circumcised, it isn't about his salvation, it's actually about other people's salvation. Listen carefully. When Timothy is circumcised, it's not about Tim's salvation. He's already saved. It's about the salvation of those they're trying to reach. Notice what it says in the second half of verse 3. Why was he circumcised? The scriptures couldn't be more clear here. Because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. What does that mean? It means that if Timothy is going to join the team with Paul and Silas, and I think Luke is joining here in this, this section of Scripture too, if he's going to, to join their mission work, it will be necessary or at least very strategic if he was fully Jewish in a way. If he was able to enter the synagogue, able to talk with someone about Christ as a, as a person who was a Jew and now is a Christian who would be able to access those places with because people are going to be suspicious of him. He's, well, he's, he's part Jew, right? Timothy makes this incredible bridge. He's, he understands the world of the Gentile through his father, and he understands the world of the Jew, the world, world of the Jew through his mother. So he, he, he's an incredible link here. He's sort of half Gentile and half Jew, which if you know from the rabbi's teachings, that wasn't supposed to happen. But he is going to be circumcised in order that the full, you might say, full-blooded Jews would accept him and start to listen 
to the one they're point, he's pointing to, that is the Messiah of the Jews, and of all people, Jesus Christ. Which brings to me my second observation. If the first is that in the household of faith, the re reason for doing something matters, the motivation is key. The second observation is that the, in the household of faith, discernment is needed, not rules. Children need rules. The petty, the covetous, the impure, the ungodly, they need rules, but do sons and daughters need rules? 1 Timothy 1.5, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Paul goes on to write to Timothy, verse 8. Now we know, Tim, that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, that is, correctly. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, for men who practice homosexuality, for enslavers, for liars, for perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. He's saying that those rules were established for those who, who, who are obstinate, who will refuse to surrender and follow God as Father and recognize God as Lord and Creator and Savior. But the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Which brings me to my third observation. In the household of faith, the church, that is, Jesus Christ is Lord. He's the master. Imagine the job interview that Timothy had with Paul that day. Great news, you got the assignment. Just this itsy-bitsy little thing you need to do. <laughs> Just a you know, little thing. We'd love to take you on just one little condition of your employment. Yikes. I mean, as a 21st century American, uh, in our, we would be like, what are you, wait a second. Thanks, but no thanks. I guess I'm looking for another position, right? There's a line that, that you're, wait a second, you, we love autonomy, right? We are, self-determination is, a, is, a, is a, a fundamental value of the American way of being. Uh, independent spirit, that sort of thing, self-reliance. So what are you saying to me, Paul? You want me to do what? You've got to be kidding me. Uh, don't you realize what this will mean if I do this? And by the way, this is a, my body. It's my body. This is a very personal matter here, Paul. It, it is a very personal matter. And it is his business. And it is his choice, by the way. Incredibly, Timothy surrenders to this. He submits to this. And I find in that very, something very instructive. Uh, again, Eugene Peterson, uh, one more quote from him. He writes this, For God never makes private, secret salvation deals with people. His relationships with us are always personal, true, intimate, absolutely, but they are private, never. It is not a private relationship you, you've been invited to in Christ. I think that's one thing that the evangelical church, or more broadly, the American church has flawed. We are so fiercely independent. We don't understand that when God saves one person, he's also saving a whole household eventually, or maybe even immediately, like in Lydia and the jailer's case. Since Christ, Jesus is our Lord. Let me say this, beloved. I mean this for your good and mine. It is his honor and reputation that matters, not yours. If you go around and say, well, what are your convictions? What do you think about this? How about you jettison your desire to find out what your convictions are? What are Christ's convictions? Go to the scriptures to establish that. I mean, you can disagree. We, should have, we could have rousing discussions on what his convictions are laid down in scripture. 
But at least at least go to the Bible. Let's let that, make that our instinct to understand what his convictions are. Because at the end of the day, especially when you see him in glory or when the trumpet sounds and he comes back in a magnificent, victorious way, the last thing will be on your mind, your convictions, your body. You will be thinking about his body. You'll be thinking about his convictions. You'll be thinking about his power and glory, not your own. So in light of his coming, live now like your body is his body. Like your choices are, are to glorify him, both personally and in your household, local, you know, your, your nuclear household, I'll call it, and in the church, the household of faith. I like what he said to the Galatians. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me and the life I now live I live by faith in the son of God who gave himself for me right who loved me and gave himself for me you are not your own Paul writes to another church in Corinth he writes for you were bought with a price and so therefore you must glorify God in your body I mean just think through what this meant for Timothy remember he had not been circumcised. His, his mother was a Jew, but his, says his father was a Greek. After the interview with Paul and Silas, and maybe they went and, and, and had that procedure done, imagine the next conversation Timothy has with his father. Hey, Dad. What did he say next? Don't you think it hurt his father? The father's the head of the household. He has the authority to pick and choose these certain things. Yes, he married a Jewess, and he knew what he was marrying, and still he said, but my son is going to be like me. Isn't that in the heart of every parent? My son's going to be like me. The thing of it is, don't we in our household want it to be true that, that God will help us with that, that he'll keep our kids like us, but we want to pick and choose what parts of us they're like. <laughs> you right? I'd like them to be in these areas like me now, as I've grown up a lot in Christ, but not like those other areas that are me, not so good me. Do you know what I mean? You know what I mean. This man's a Greek. I don't know how it went down. But Paul, all, or, but then he had to say to his dad, and oh, by the way, hey, dad, I'm leaving. And you got to remember, in that world, when you're a son, you take on dad's business. Remember Jesus, he was a carpenter like his dad, Joseph. That's what you do. By the way, dad, not only uh, did I choose a different way of appearance, different convictions than you chose, I'm leaving. I'm going to go with this other guy, Paul. I wonder if that father, and we don't know that he was even around. He may have been dead. We don't know. The, 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 the scriptures don't say. But I'm just trying to understand what it is to come to Christ and the, the cost of that. Right? The disruption that has in a household, a, a specific household. His mom was excited. His grandma, we know, was thrilled with what, what uh, uh, Timothy was doing. But, but his dad, we don't hear records of him. Probably, maybe, speculation, because he was less thrilled. We don't know, but I can tell you this. That if I were in that dad's shoes, I'd be pretty frustrated. And I also would feel threatened. Wait a second. Who persuades you to do this? Paul. Oh, 
You think Paul's a better dad than I am, do you? Daddy, yes I do. Daddy, yes I do. Beloved, salvation has so much more to offer than what you and I as Americans think. We must be a biblical people, not an American people. Now, we will be a biblical people in America, but the kind of household that God would have for you and me is different, is of a different order and magnitude, a different depth, a different level of sacrifice than you yet understand. Timothy subjected himself to quite a procedure here as a grown man. He faced the threat of that relationship, that, the severing of a, of a connection he had with his father or picking up dad's mantle, that legacy, all those things. And on what basis? On that third observation I made, that in the household of faith, Jesus Christ is Lord. Look, if you're younger or, you know, you're, I'll use that younger in a broad term. I don't just mean teenagers. I mean younger as in you're less than 49. Because I'm 46. <laughs> and you're choosing things that deviate from what went before, the legacy of your parents and grandparents. Why are you doing that? Are you doing that because you're being true to yourself? Are, are you saying, Mama, I'm not going to go the way you went. I'm going to go the way I want to go. You're basing that then on your convictions, your ideas, on your opinion, which at your stage in life is very selfish. And based on a lot of ignorance, I'll tell you. The only reason you should ever deviate from those that you are meant to honor, your father and mother, is if you are honoring a greater Lord, a greater father. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. In our time, we, right now, we're just, everyone's in angst trying to figure out what bits of mom or dad I want to reject, my grandpa, my grandpa, grandfather, what bits of this, that other thing I need to, to just expunge from my memory and recalibrate. And you try to go find a handful of people that believe lock and step exactly what you believe. And you develop a little community. You can call it a family, but it isn't. But you can't sever those nuclear, those, those relationships, you can't deny that your mama brought you into this world <laughs> at great expense and cost that sacrifices were made. So if you're going to deviate from the people who came before you, you need to have a really good reason for doing that. The only good reason that exists, in my view, is that if you're, you're doing that to glorify God, your creator, and Jesus who died on the cross for you. Actually, that's the only good, acceptable reason that your father or mother or grandfather, grandmother will one day accept, not only in glory, but in this life. They'll come to see, oh, they were yielding to a master who has a higher authority than mine. 
what, what God does here is so much more than we can conceive of when he saves us. And when I say I want our church to be sort of like this is the year of the household, I will say at our annual meeting, I do not mean by that that we will be an inward-focused house and will retreat from a hostile world. I mean, goodness, the church birthed in Philippi lived in an extremely hostile environment. They saw persecution day one. They saw economic threat day one. That's why their household of faith had to be so rigorous and strong because if they were going to abandon... Uh, the God Apollo and other uh, connections that were used for economic and, and, and societal connections, they would have to depend on each other for everything. Uh, when you think about in Acts chapter 3 and 4, when, when it says that the, that the, the early church, it, we get kind of inspired by their generosity, that they would sell their fields and that sort of thing to provide for each other, that is beautiful. But you have to remember the reason they had to do it was because their situation was so desperate. When they joined Jesus, they lost everything. Some of them lost their family. Remember the blind man who was healed? He lost his parents to follow Jesus. He lost social security and, 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 and connectivity. So I'm warning you, I guess, by God's spirit, that hard days could be upon us. It seems to me that might be possible. So you will need, you will need to be a part of a household of faith that have each other's backs so thoroughly that they're willing to sacrifice and give much for each other. I can tell you, I won't do that for you, but I will do it for Jesus. I will do it for Jesus and for his household of faith. That is a, a different caliber of community, of house, than any family on this planet can offer. In fact, in some way or another, every good, beautiful, functioning family is merely a, an echo, a, a copy. And sometimes it's like the fifth or tenth or fifteenth generation of a copy. And you, you only get like a little blurry a bit image of, of him. But every family on earth gets its names, derives its existence from the Father in heaven. What is the result of the household of faith put in order and a team assembling well. You see it here in verse 5. They're strengthening in the faith. They're being increased in numbers daily. Now for the second half of my sermon. <laughs> <Huh. laughs> verse 14, 15. Here we go. Uh, I, I will uh, summarize. I, I, I hope by now you, you see that there's... There's some stuff here in the Bible that we haven't entertained, not in terms of past the sort of theoretical idea, but like the practical idea of how, that, how do we live into such a way of being. The way that the, the household of faith in Philippi, which was a beautiful church, I'll, I'll quote from Philippians during our, our annual meeting a bit, uh, beautiful church. Uh, not that we want to be like Philip, the church of Philippi. Our context is so starkly different and yet similar because of the corruption of our flesh and the systems of the world that we live in, but not exactly like Philippi. But look at verse 14 and 15. Let me just read uh, a couple of verses here and then at the end uh, of the chapter as well. Two places where the word household is, is, is suggested and used, I mean, and suggests or, or begs the question on whether you're calibrated to the way God works in households. It says this, that after, after the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul, uh, verse 15, after And after she was baptized, and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you've judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. I already preached on, on Lydia's thing, but I would just say this. 
what's going on here? The text explicitly says that when the Lord opened her, her heart, singular heart, one her heart, not their hearts, her heart, he doesn't give, the scriptures don't give the details on who all composed her household, what members or nieces and nephews or children or grandchildren. We have no idea who all was in the household, what servants maybe that were there just by uh, employment and that sort of thing. Uh, but it does say that the rest of her household, all her household was baptized that day as well. I wonder if this was like what happened in, in the Old Testament with Joshua. Remember, uh, Joshua, after uh, doing an incredible thing in the Promised Land, uh, beginning the, uh, the defeat of the Canaanites, who were very evil and wicked people, uh, displacing them with a people who should be a better steward, uh, God's people. It says this, If it's evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, says Joshua in one of his last messages to the people, if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods of your father, who, that they, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you now dwell, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Uh, most of us like that idea, <laughs> you know, like being able to demand of those around us and beneath us who are following up what direction they're headed. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I'm raising adult children, and I know that that's not for the faint of heart, and I know that they don't always go the way you want mom and dad, right? Grown kids grow up, and there's lots of challenges with this, but, but you still are, have an authority where God put you in your house. You are to decide who you will worship and how it's going to go down. And if, as for me and my house, said Joshua, we will serve the Lord. Maybe Lydia's enterprise, her household, however vast, and it seems that she probably had a villa. It was big enough that the early church could live there, could be there, I'll say. That was where the church gathered. The end of the chapter makes that quite clear. Uh, it was a big enough estate that others could get there, but whatever was going on, did, they, did the people who knew her well so respect her that they say, wherever you go, I'll go, Lydia. Whatever you think's right, I'm in. <laughs> you know, was it really about how much did they understand of the gospel? How much did they have clarity on the gospel? I, I think that's really quite challenging as you think about baptism and other things because it might simply be that there's just a lot of Ruth going on here. Where Ruth, remember what she said to Naomi? I don't think Ruth fully understood the magnitude of what she said to Naomi when she said this, where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people. Your God, my God. Could she have ever conceived of the, the kinsman redeemer situation? And what would happen? She didn't know what to do. She was just following Naomi's instructions. Beloved, when God saves you, understand that not everyone has the same vantage point and depth of maturity and understanding on what baptism or whatever it is or the Lord Jesus at the same time. But if he saved you, guaranteed he wishes others to see what you see and further as well. That their faith might surpass even you on uh, in the faith, that they might surpass you in the faith. I, I think we must be careful and only uh, embrace or reject the ways of those we know and love on the basis that Jesus Christ is Lord. And he did say, honor your father and mother. Our, our conception of household might need adjustment. Look at one more verse uh, section, verse 30. The, the Philippian jailer, we talked about him, an interesting thing how the Lord rescues this man. It says in verse 30 of Acts 16 this, uh, this is after he thinks people have rushed out, he pulls his sword to kill himself because he wants to, don't want to lose honor. 
uh, he, he, it says this, uh, verse 30, Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. You and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them that same hour of the night, washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced. Notice what they're about to do. He rejoiced along with his entire house that he had believed in God. I think that's a way of signaling that not everyone gets everything at the same time. It would be a miracle. Think about your house. Would it not be a miracle if Jesus the gift of salvation, the regenerate heart that is salvation, if that happened to everyone in your house simultaneously on the exact same day? Wow. I've only heard of one testimony. We just heard about it in, uh, I think it was uh, December, of of a husband who comes to faith in the night. His wife reads John's gospel all night, stays up late, and by that morning she said, me too. 12 hours, less than 12 hours, one conversion to the next. It's far more rare, isn't it, that we ones and twosies come to this? But that's not how Paul and Silas present it. Because, here's why. As a, as a manager of a household, the Lord wants to save me so thoroughly, so deeply, so integratedly that, that he actually wants to save not just Josh's skin, but the skin of everyone I love. Could you imagine if Paul and Silas had said to, to, to uh, the jailer, great news, we can save you. But your wife and kids, ah, not so much. Would the jailer be satisfied for that? No husband, no father worth his salt would say that's sufficient. I think you know what I'm saying. You would rather, like Paul said in Romans, he thought of his kin, of, his, of, his, of the Jews. He said, I would rather be accursed that, that my kin would be saved. I, I know that you would rather suffer to save your child's suffering than, than, than anything, Right? You would ra- I know, talking to a brother in the Lord whose wife is suffering dearly, he wishes he could take all of that in himself so that she would be spared. But what God does is different than you expect. He's better at it than you are. I would say this, the Lord is more committed to your salvation. Maybe if that word's weird for you. He's more committed to your welfare and the welfare of your family than you are. He wants your household saved. He wants you saved deeply. And that will happen not by you kind of rushing in and demanding certain things necessarily. It will happen as you make Christ the center of your being. Because when you know Christ at the depth that Christ offers himself, you become a gloriously beautiful person that no other family in this world and universe can compare to. And they can know him as well in that manner. I, to me, when I read that your house, you and your house will be saved, that, that is meant to engender hope. That's meant to nurture within me hope that God might save those who are currently distant from himself. I'll finish with this. Acts 2.38, Peter, after that incredible initial sermon where thousands come to faith and repentance and get baptized that day, he said this, what must we do? They asked the same question to, to Simon Peter. He says this, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, 
everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Do you know anyone far off from the things that matter to Jesus, that matter to you now as you're growing in grace and godliness? The promises for you and for your children, the Lord is able to call anyone to himself. If he can save you back in that day when you were once far from him, he can save anyone at any time. Father in heaven, uh, we're just huddling beneath the mighty name of Jesus. Uh, I suppose as an under-shepherd, a steward of this household, I, I, I yield to you the keys of the door, the keys of the kingdom. Give to us whatever you would desire of your spirit, of your word. Forge, form this household to be a place of sanctuary so that the salvation that we know intimately and personally and in this community is so deep that when someone comes to Christ, it's not just a conviction of a head knowledge or information, that that relationship with Christ begins to spill out and they are involved in a household. They're, they're very retrained and reoriented to how they ought to know you as their creator and Lord and redeemer and then how to love one another well. Grant that this might be such an oasis in a, in a place of famine and where there's no bread around, in a place where there's isolation and loneliness and people are taking all kinds of chemicals to try to make themselves feel okay. You, Jesus, are the only rock we know of no other. And so we pray for those who are distant from you. And I know every heart this morning has one or two or five names on their heart that they have often brought to you. And for whatever reason, you have not brought them to faith yet. We just beg you and renew before you their names. The couple I brought up in my heart just now, Lord, just Charge in. <laughs> Rescue, please. Deliver from sin, from suffering. Heal. Deliver. Strengthen and undergird your people. Oh, Lord, I just pray that, that all those who are far off would be delivered from their sins. That they would know a Savior who will save them in more ways than they can have possibly imagine when they first started following. Lord, you are good. You are a good father. You are a great father. And so we per persist like that widow, knowing that you are a better judge than any judge on this planet, better justice of the peace. So bring mercy, bring healing, bring salvation to those that are close to us. Because if you save them, it'll also be saving more of our hearts too. In Christ's name, amen.